This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We are prepared for the Taliban and many, many NGOs, including ourselves, had programs in Taliban-held areas. So we are ready for that. What we were not prepared for is to have a government collapse with no negotiations and government transition. Taliban just took over. What we expected is for the National Army to fight. It was a bloodless takeover. So how did we feel? Shocked. None of us expected this. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Do something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beat. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. <laughs> In the wake of the United States' chaotic departure from Afghanistan, the world has watched as over 120,000 evacuees escaped and now attempt to resettle in countries across the globe. We wanted to understand this crisis and illuminate some of the stories of those on the front lines, those leading the effort to help people who've watched their entire country drastically change in a matter of days. We hope to introduce you to a handful of people who aren't just waiting around for change to happen, but are actively pursuing it. And we hope it might inspire you to do the same. The clip you just heard was from my interview with today's guest, Marnie Gustafsson, who watched in disbelief as the city she'd grown to love fell under Taliban control. Marnie serves as the executive director for Parsa, a humanitarian organization based in Kabul that focuses on youth leadership, economic empowerment, and social protection. But Marnie's ties to Afghanistan start way, way before her time here today. There would be an airplane ride that would change her life. But before that, Marnie was going about a fairly normal childhood in the bustling city of Seattle. My dad was in the army when I was born in Germany. And my mother joined him with me. And then we came back to Seattle and my two sisters were born. But for my parents, there was an experience living overseas that they loved and they felt was missing. So when I was about nine years old, my father as a teacher applied to various positions internationally. He was offered a position in Kabul, Afghanistan with the American International School of Kabul as a teacher. And it just sounded so exciting and my parents were excited and it was an adventure. Kabul, I mean, it was just, it was just so different. It was dirty, but interesting. And all the food was out in the bazaar and there were animals everywhere and fat-tailed sheep and camels and goats. Actually, I still have this today, a sense of awe 
and brightness at the intensity of the people in their interactions and just the busyness in the streets. Stalls everywhere, you know, where they're selling everything. I mean, in Afghanistan, the streets are places to say hello, places to stop, places to chat, places to browse. So it's a, a just different feel in Afghanistan, and it was it was just it was magical. When you first arrived, I'm just imagining, especially in the '60s, where things were less globalized. I I would have, and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong in this assumption, but I would have assumed that it would have been a major culture shock going from Seattle to Afghanistan. There was nothing abrasive in the culture for me as a child. It was just welcoming. The culture shock really had to do with how dirty it was, garbage in the streets, open sewers, poverty was evident, beggars. That was the culture shock, being in a a third world country. In terms of Afghan, one of the most significant initial relationships was with our our Dari teacher. His name was Akbar. The thing about Akbar is he was just a funny man and he loved to joke. One of the things we did as part of our Dari lessons is we would go out into the villages and learn to speak Dari as we went along. And I remember one trip with my sisters, we were driving up this gravel road and Akbar saw a mother camel and uh, her baby off the side of the road and said, you stop the car, I want to show you something. So we stopped the car. He got out of the car, to our dismay, and went down into the field and started throwing rocks at the mother camel. And he got closer and closer to the baby. And then all of a sudden, she turned and took out after him. He ran so fast back to the car, and he was scrambling. And the mother camel (laughs) nipped his butt. (laughs) He got into the car. And I think what was so great is he thought it was so funny. He was laughing at himself. Many adventures with Akbar. You know, and when you have a relationship with someone like that, you really do have a window onto the country. Many Americans would stay pretty close to their compounds or stay pretty close to Kabul, but my mom and dad, every weekend, every chance they got, we traveled throughout the country. This energy and adventurous spirit of Marnie's parents opened doors to a life and a culture that many would have never dreamed of. And can we just take a second to think about how crazy this move is? We're talking about the 1960s. And at this time, Afghanistan was a very, very different country. This was just after the Second World War, when the U.S., the Soviet Union and powerful institutions like the European Union were pushing to increase jobs and trade across the world. Because of this push for globalization, the 50s and 60s were a period of incredible social progress for Afghanistan, a period marked by a new democratic government, more equality, education for all, and among the lowest rates of unemployment in the Middle East. But even though Afghanistan was going through this cultural shift towards liberalization and westernization, the country was still completely foreign to Marnie. From the colorful stalls lining the streets to a sense of familial closeness that enveloped every interaction, this was a country filled to the brim with wonder and excitement. I can hear that in her story about Akbar. And despite it being, well, kind of terrible to throw rocks at a camel, there's a simplicity and a lightheartedness in the story. This was most likely one story among many that highlighted the absurdity of this new life. But falling in love with Afghanistan wasn't all sunshine, rainbows, and camels. And like every girl born into this world, 
Unfortunately, Marnie had to face intense gender inequality, sexism, and misogyny. One of the things that was difficult as a girl is we dressed as Westerners, but if we went into outside of like the modern cobble, we would be approached by men because I was marriageable age. Well, I was nine years old, but I looked like a 12-year-old. So men would approach, and because we were the way we're dressed, they think we're loose women or whores, and we're open to being touched or open to being talked to, you know, in a sexually abusive way. And my dad had a terrible sense of humor. Um, I remember being out, I think we were visiting some nomads. My dad was approached by an elder of the tribe, and he said, you know, I'll, I'll give you... 12 camels and 30 sheep for her if I can take her to marry her. Now, my dad thought that was funny, so he bargained. He's like, no, I think I want 100 sheep and 50 camels, you know. But for a teenage girl, that was not funny. How did you rationalize those those experiences? Or like, was it just like, oh, you know, it's just it's just these people that are ignorant or like, like how, how did you think about those? Oh, he just got mad. I learned how to defend myself by getting mad, and my diary got better. My parents are great at really teaching us about different cultures. And my mother in particular, she'd be able to say, well, you know, in this world, and they've never been out of this world, this is how it seems. And this is what you look like to them. If I was an Afghan girl, it would be very oppressive, but I wasn't. I was an international girl navigating things, and I had a certain amount of privilege and respect because I was international. And there's just something about her kind of constant commentary about their point of view and how they saw things. I learned at an early age not to take it personally, but to kind of learn what are they seeing and, and how do I respond to this? Well, I think in that not taking it personally, it seems like you developed a really early and strong sense of empathy. I did, and but I also had a strong sense of strength. Maybe it was just his idea of a bad dad joke, but I found myself wondering if maybe Marnie's dad was going through something too. I mean, wherever you go in the world, humor is a powerful tool to adapt, to overcome, to process discomfort. And I can see Marnie's dad needing humor to navigate this new world in the face of a culture that saw his daughter as an object. This couldn't have been easy for Marnie either, but I think it taught her a lot. You know, so my response wasn't to get my feelings hurt, it was to get mad. My father taught me how to bargain. Bargaining was great. Afghans love to bargain for everything. And really, there's a whole ritual about purchasing something that involves standing up, negotiating, and coming to terms with what you're going to do, what they're going to do. You know, learning how to bargain as a child truly positioned me to do the work I do today. She learned to get mad, to barter, and to stand her ground, all traits that would lead to a sense of leadership that she still embodies today. If she was going to adapt to Afghan society, she needed to walk a very fine line. To embrace, understand, and respect Afghan culture, yes, but also to learn to stand up for herself within that culture, to learn when to defy that culture. After years of doing that work and integrating into Afghanistan's culture, Marnie's life reversed course. 
the bustling streets of Kabul vanished and she found herself back in small town USA. Well, I went back and spent my teenage years in Southern Illinois. I was homesick for Afghanistan. That really, I never got over it. So then I went back to Seattle and um, spent my latter teenage years in Seattle. And I don't know how I came to performance art. I mean, I just loved theater, loved to write, loved to perform. Went to Cornish Art Institute and um, decided to... Performance art was very new. Uh, I actually, within the group that I worked with, specialized in being a director, which is probably the theme of my life. Being the oldest child, just being a director... So I learned how to work in performance by having very independent artists from different, you know, a theater, you know, an actor with a writer, with painter, with a musician, uh, be able to do collaborative performances, specializing in improvisation. So that's that's what I did. It was very new back then. But I imagine those skills allowed you to develop into a better leader, right? Yeah, I would say particularly both the ability to direct something and then the ability to direct something that's improvisatory as opposed to set. Those are the skills that very few people understand that I have to this day in terms of being able to navigate my work as a leader in Afghanistan. Yeah, I would say so. Up until the Taliban fell, I had a pretty distant relationship with Afghanistan because it didn't seem like it was possible to go back. So what changed later? What changed around 2003? Well, uh, when the Taliban fell, I was in touch with a number of other alumni from American International School of Kabul. And at one of our reunions, we sat together and said, hey, let's go back. One of our alumni was a filmmaker, and she wanted to do a small documentary on us returning. So it kind of built from there. With about 15 of us, I went and in advance of the group and set up our place to stay and how we we're going to travel and where we we're going to go. How did you feel being back and what did you see and what did it look like? Well, it was, it was larger than when we had left. Uh, it was complete. There were areas of town that were just completely rubble. There were places I recognized, um, other places I didn't. When I was sitting with women, it was a little gruesome. They would sit and they'd tell me about their experiences during the war and show me their bullet wound, you know, their wounds. People would talk to me about the Russian invasion and how the Russians, you know, destroyed their villages and destroyed their houses. It's such a sense of ancientness. I mean, so, so way beyond what we have in our own country. There's a sense of, I don't know how to say it. It's just like Afghanistan was, it is now, and it will be. Particularly being in the countryside you know, of Afghanistan, being with people who dress and live like they did thousands of years ago. There's just a sense of longevity and length of time that 
I never, I never really understood until I lived in Afghanistan. That longevity Marnie describes, the unchanging landscape and the preservation of culture contrasts against the evolution of Kabul. Parts of the city have been built up and torn down. In some places, the footprints of Soviet boots are still blowing away in the sand. In other places, the ghost of Mujahideen still walks the streets and landscape. 1996, the date that I mentioned a bit earlier, represented an important political shift. It was the year the Taliban captured Kabul and killed Afghanistan's president, Mohammad Najibullah. After they seized power, the Taliban began its strict rule. It would be a period that would sit in the minds of Afghan citizens for decades to follow. But that period wouldn't last long. In 2001, the Taliban's rule had come to an end. And that's when Marnie began to give back to the country that raised her. No, I, I, I went, did another trip with another group by myself. And then I just came back after that trip and said to my husband, I said, you know, well, you can, we can either send me back to Afghanistan every couple of months or we can actually move there. And he was on for it. He's like, yeah, that's great. You know, from the moment I, I moved there permanently, learning about the Afghans, the people that you meet, I have to just tell you, it was just, it's fascinating to me. I've never lost that fascination. I've never lost that interest. So there was a sense, particularly, you know, when you're surviving, as Afghans do, there's this kind of sense of immediacy to your day, and it's kind of your day's over, and you wonder what you did. Everything's talked about, everything's discussed. So there's this just this wrapped around this community, this sense of communal effort. So speaking of living and working, like what, what were you doing? So I went back and worked with UN women um, training the new female parliamentarians for the first sitting at parliament. That was my first job there. I actually ended up leaving that job. I was, you know, and moving on. And that's when I made the decision because I had lived at Parsons since, Norm and I had lived at Parsons since we came in and moved in. I'm pretty sure it was 1996 is when um, Mary McMakin, the founder of Parsa, founded Parsa during the Taliban. Okay, so what is Parsa? So Parsa is a private, non-governmental organization that works directly with disadvantaged people of Afghanistan, anyone that really needs help. And the way that Parsa supports communities is they make their own development solutions. So they focus on promoting social change and a healthy and fair society for all people, but especially for women and children. And this was a mission that inspired Marnie. And then Mary would take trips back home to go fundraise, and the staff would start coming to me and saying, what do I do about this, and how do I fix this? And What were you noticing about the handcraft, about the operation of Parse as a whole? Like, did you think, as uh, your director spirit came out, did you think that maybe you could help improve some of these processes? Oh, no, it just crept up on me. I just started noticing I was spending a lot of time working with the staff. And then um, Mary came to me and said, you know, I'm very tired. I'm tired of fundraising. Would you be willing to become be the executive director? Which I did agree to in 2006 on a voluntary basis while I was still working. 
parcels started to grow and it was clearly a better place for me because I had the autonomy, the creativity, and I'm also as immersed with people I like. I wasn't immersed with the elite like I was in Parliament. You know, living there, being with the staff, we just started coming up with ideas and, you know, being a small nonprofit, being with beneficiaries who were poor, being with the marginalized, it just gave me a whole learning opportunity. Can you tell me a story from that time? Because I also know, I mean, you uh, created like a show, Our Beloved Afghanistan, um, with uh, Siraj. Uh, One of the things I did as a side to be able to make money was uh, Mabub and I went out and did surveys for organizations. Okay, so I know the name Mabuba came out of nowhere, but we're going to explain who she is shortly. We met each other at a friend's house, and um, Mabuba said to me, and the dog, she was just talking about the problems, and she said, the dogs of Afghanistan, I wouldn't want that life for anybody, and it was just something about her saying that, and she and I just became fast friends from the beginning, and she and I, she and I have worked on projects. Mabuba is, um, she's part of the royal family, she's the niece of King Amanala. So she has this extraordinary legacy. Amanala and his family are credited for modernizing Afghanistan. But she is she gets a bit high-handed and on her soapbox. And so I had to listen to her for a half an hour go on about something. And I finally said, Mama Bush, I said, shut up. Just be quiet for a second. I said, your next project is to find an amplifier for all the things you have to say other than my ear, other than me. (laughs) And she's so funny. I mean, it's just the great Afghan sense of humor. She just thought that was the funniest thing. I said, radio show, let's get you a radio show. Wait, so that's how the radio show show started? started. So we went to a friend with equal, who ran equal access and pitched a radio show for her where she went all over the country. We called it, I forget the Dari, but it means my beloved Afghanistan. And she's well regarded as a national leader of you know, civil rights. And I'm, I'm lucky with her as my friend, but I'm also one of the few people that can actually say, shut up, Mabuba. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of listening to you. I want to slip into this tangent really quick because Mabuba Siraj deserves an episode of her own. Mabuba was born into royalty as the niece of the sovereign Amanala Khan, who during his reign in the 1920s tried to modernize Afghanistan. He created schools for boys and girls, overturned dress codes, and advanced a constitution calling for equal rights. All drastic changes that were met with rebellions and oppositions that culminated in his abdication and fleeing Afghanistan in 1929, never to return. A half century later, a revolution in 1978 led to another regime change with the Communist Party of Afghanistan in charge. Mabuba and her husband were thrown in jail and later left after being declared persona non grata, person not welcome. After nearly 30 years, Mabuba then returned to Afghanistan. She thrived, and in addition to becoming a radio star, she founded the nonprofit Afghan Women's Network, empowering survivors of domestic violence and fighting against corruption. Are all of these educated women and the women of Afghanistan who know their rights and who, who can stand for themselves and, they, and you can be independent and knowledgeable and educated women. It was the most, one of the most amazing and one of the most fulfilling um, works 
that I have ever done in my life. So, you know, I'm, I'm really looking Then, when the Taliban took power again in 2021, Mabubu refused to flee the country, and she was determined to keep fighting. Same thing. This time, I would like to see this whole thing through. I want to see what we are going to do as Afghans. Because for the past 40-plus years, this country has been in the hands of other powers. So now, maybe it's in our hands. So let's see. A month later, she was featured as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. With Mabuba as a friend and peer, Marnie found herself working closely with someone whose identity and commitment to positive change was more intimately connected to Afghanistan than she ever could be. Seeing the world through Mabuba's eyes gave ever more fuel to the fire spurring Marnie to action. She forged ahead, seeking new ways to uplift and improve the well-being of Afghan children. This is an ad for Roundup for Lawns. It kills weeds down to the root without harming your lawn. It works on crabgrass, dandelions, clover. It works on weeds with names you can't even pronounce. It's Roundup for Lawns. When used as directed, always read and follow pesticide label directions. So you were doing stuff about the things that you saw that 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 weren't working. You were developing Parsa into something that was more effective and far-reaching. And in 2011, um, you started working with an orphanage. Can you tell me a little bit about why and how you started working with them? Well, we had a donor, Betty Tisdale, with Halo, who's very famous for airlifting the orphans out of Vietnam. And then I noticed that she was donating to Parsa she was from Seattle and he visited Seattle. I said, Betty, would you like us to funnel this money toward a project with orphans? And she said, of course I'd like that. So when I got back to Kabul, we went and began negotiating, working with the National Orphanage Director and working in two uh, orphanages in Kabul. I was really fussing because I needed to come up with activities for the kids in the orphanages other than Daria lessons or, you know, very, very limited educational opportunities. And I was driving my son and we were up in the Shibar Pass and it was snowing and he saw a family that had their car had, you know, fallen into the, fallen into the ditch and they were out by the road trying to get help. And he went to the back of our car and pulled out a winch rope, just this whole apparatus pulled the car out and got the family back in the car. It was about 10 minutes. And I said, you know, Reese, where in the hell did you learn that? Because you didn't (laughs) learn it from me. Well, Scouts, Mom, I learned it when I was part of Boy Scouts. I said to Reese, I said, that's it. That's the program we're looking for for the orphanages. That was our beginning of... The scout program, Reese, uh, along with an Afghan counterpart, started two scout troops, one in the boys' orphanage and one in the girls' orphanage, uh, funded by Betty Fisdale and her A Halo project. We live on a large acreage uh, with the Afghan Red Crescent. We have a lot of space. And one of the things that we would do each year is camperies. We would have like 300 kids spending the night for seven days camping and doing ropes courses and learning all kinds of outdoor skills. Uh, it was just the best time of their lives. They never wanted to leave. 
what happened is the girls came to us and said, well, we want more time in the scouts programs. We're only meeting weekly and doing these community service projects, but we want more time. We want to come to Corsa five days a week. So we started what we call the Sisters for Sisters program and Brothers for Brothers program. And really uh, the leadership lesson that we wanted to teach the girls is that they're stronger as a group. Teenagers are kind of hard on each other, girls or boys. Uh, so it was really about them coming together and working together as, as a group and navigating and problem solving together. And that started in 2018. Really, it's still barely funded, but their work strengthened the Scout program. Just in the last year, we finally achieved the 171st, I think, country with the World Scout Organization, and all of that stopped. It's been put on hold. It was second nature for Marnie to do everything she could to improve the quality of life for Afghan children and women, really anyone in need. Where people needed help, that's where she was. That's where she stepped in. And from Parsa to Scouting to Sister for Sister, Brothers for Brothers, each program she worked on became a deeply personal space to love, care for, and uplift the Afghan people and communities of tomorrow. Of course, none of Marnie's nonprofit work was ever going to be easy, but that came with a job. But then everything was thrown into jeopardy when the U.S. withdrew its forces after 20 years of occupation. Many of us have seen videos and newscasts that came out of Afghanistan when the Taliban marched towards Kabul back in August. Tonight. Panic, chaos, a staggering collapse. The Taliban have taken Afghanistan. The Kabul airport is the only safe way out of Afghanistan. And today, there was nearly a run on it. Afghans We've heard the talking heads argue and discuss what should have happened and debate about who's to blame for what. But none of that addresses the people on the ground, the people in the streets who are watching their whole world change or crumble. NGOs were prepared for the U.S. to leave. We were prepared for there to be uh, negotiations. We were prepared for a new and transitional government. Many of us who are NGO directors had a severe problems with the former government. This President Khani really was hostile toward NGOs. He wanted all of the international financing to go into the government. Anyway, we are prepared for the Taliban, and many, many NGOs, including ourselves, had programs in Taliban-held areas. You know, NGO directors are reporting that in the Taliban-held areas, you know, they were getting more cooperation with the government. So we were ready for that. What we were not prepared for, nobody was prepared for, is to have the government collapse with no negotiations and tr government transition. Do you remember any of the conversations you were having around that time period or like what you were thinking and feeling when I guess the Taliban were coming closer to taking over the city? What we expected is for the National Army to fight with the U.S. support. So we were ready for that. What we were not prepared for is to have the government collapse with no negotiations and government transition. And that happened just as I left the country. I was coming back for medical reasons, and I did move my flight up because 
in the past week, all of the provincial capitals had fallen in seven days, which meant that the government was just walking away. It was a bloodless takeover in most places, you know, other than Panjshir. Very, very few places was there any resistance to the Taliban. And by the time that I got to Dubai, Kabul had fallen. None of us expected this. None of us expected this. The Taliban is in control of Afghanistan. The country's president has fled, and Western countries are scrambling to get people out. And this took the U.S. by surprise. I did not, nor did anyone else, see a collapse of an army that size in 11 days. And the thing is that in some ways, the Taliban are trying to have a peaceful transition of power somewhat, but also this is the Taliban. They aren't necessarily equipped to navigate peace. You know, the Taliban are a military takeover. They are aggressive. I heard this story from a journalist friend of mine who talked to a Taliban fighter who had confronted some women who were protesting school closure and women not going back to work. And he talked to the guy and he said, this guy just said, my goal in life is to die in glory, killing somebody. I don't know how to deal with women protesting. What am I supposed to do? On the, in the Taliban, populists are not educated, don't know what they're doing. You just have these unpredictable people with not a lot of control over it. And that still exists as for today. And then we've done what you do in a tribal area, which is you've got your pockets of protection. So it's just completely broken down. And the fear is just, I don't know, it just freezes people. It's exhausting. This exhausting transition, if we can even call it a transition, of the U.S. leaving Afghanistan left the country in a state of chaos. It's one thing to see it on the news behind a television screen or in print. We think we can wrap our heads around it, around what's going on world's way. But hearing Marnie's experience, I realized I can't imagine how truly devastating this situation was. No preparation, no discussions, no direction. With the Taliban regaining control over most of Afghanistan, Marnie and countless others were left wondering how best to move forward. How could they continue to do the work they were doing, to continue teaching, empowering, and creating change? How would they deal with social issues when even basic women's rights are still up in the air? And without concrete information, civilians are forced to wait out the storm. But regardless of the upheaval and confusion, the Afghan people are still trying to continue Parsis programs and all the good work the organization has done any way they can. Um, one of the girls, she's just a pistol. She's just darling. I've known her for 10 years. I mean, you know, I've lived there and on site at Afghan Crescent. I've raised these kids. So I've known them since they were really young. And she contacted me through WhatsApp and she said, okay, I've got all the girls on WhatsApp. We formed a group and we're getting to work. I'm going to teach them public speaking on WhatsApp. And we're, we're trying to figure out who knows what, and we're going to get our teachers involved. We're going to not let the Taliban win. We're going to, we're going to do our programs. How did that make you feel? I was just thrilled. I mean, what a remarkable response. And, you know, she knew we were there for her. Yeah, the resilience. Could you tell me about some of those stories of resilience? Well, I have a psychiatrist who's been working on our um, 
uh, working on a project with returnees. And uh, this week, his director, his manager, left without letting either of us know, which is hard on, you know, it's like, we love this guy. It's just like, we would have supported you leaving, but how could you leave us and just not let us know you're leaving? You know, and he came through this week and he just said, you know, I've been on, but I've been through such bad situations in Afghanistan. I'm just kind of the right person for the right time. So I'm going to be here with you as we rebuild Parsa. This man has run a hospital and intercountered Taliban a number of different times. And he, he talked about a time when, you know, Taliban came and shot his friend in the head right next to him while he was trying to administer a hospital. So, I mean, there's just extraordinary stories like that all over the place. And there's people there that are just kind of like, you know, Mabuba's there. She says, I'm not leaving. I left when the Russians invaded. I am not leaving. I'm sorry. This is my time in history. This is my time to be here. You know, I'm going back. You're going back? Oh, yeah. Shortly. I can't wait to get there for the people like Sharif. This isn't going to go this way, the way it did back then. Afghanistan's not going to go that way, and I'm going to be here to shape it. I'm going to be here to shape the future. And I, you know, for them, I can hardly wait to get back because I am that voice for Afghanistan. What do you think your duty is? I am firmly. My duty is not to be Afghan. My I'm, my duty is to advocate, to fight, to fund, to console to support Afghan leaders. That's my duty. My duty is to be there by their side as they shape the future of their country. I'd also like to return to the scout program. What is the status of that currently? It's on hold. My deputy director is uh, resettling his family in Canada currently, and then he's going to be back. I mean, you have all these programs, the orphanage, people in the scouts, like, what do you think they're experiencing now that they don't have these, these structures that you provide? Well, we're in them? communication with them, and we are. We continue to work with them. The hardest thing is for the girls. I mean, girls' schools closed. I mean, I spoke with Jamin last night, and he said, you know, we... We're doing a lot of negotiations, but this one very influential NGO director said you shouldn't have women at work and you shouldn't have girls in the programs. So our girls, in particular, the Sister for Sisters, you know, it's kind of like whatever they wanted, it was possible at Parsa. And now all of a sudden I can't even bring them into the facilities. You know, just imagine being a 17-year-old where you thought you're going to college and you thought you're going to be in sports and you're going to do this and that and all of a sudden it's like nope girls are not allowed I mean it's just like it really is a traumatic event for girls and women around the country and even my staff female staff members you know I have to say I mean guys NGOs are protected you have permission to work through NGOs so why are you so depressed I mean course is continuing you have a job but even, you know, I have to talk them through it. You know, you're not being stopped in your career. You have a career at Parson. Parson's continuing. Parson's permission to operate. Do you think they believe that it will continue to operate? Well, of course, particularly being Afghans. 
<laughs> um, of course, there's doubt. Of, but uh, I've been with them 17 years, so, and I keep my promises with them, and I remind them of that. So it's really my longevity, my deep commitment to the country. I don't have a lot of, you know, is Parsa going to continue? And the truth is, I tell them if it wasn't. But we're supported, and we are going to continue, and we're navigating through. So, it's. But I'm just saying that psychological thing of all of a sudden just being erased from political involvement, erased from society. You know, you're not supposed to be in the streets. I mean, that whole thing is just. That's been an enormous psychological blow. Have you had conversations, like direct conversations with the Taliban? I haven't because I haven't been there. My staff have. Two years ago, I was accused of teaching Christianity and corrupting my staff by the Taliban. And we hired this wonderful man, negotiator, to negotiate my trial. I was on trial. He got, he got us through. I got cleared. He said, you know, you're, you're now registered with the Taliban. It was late, early this spring. He's Taliban because he's obviously able to go between the two worlds. He said he was easy representing you. It was easy representing Parsa because all of your programs are just that. They're there to serve the Afghan people. It's really clear you're just doing incredible work. So easy to represent you, easy to continue to promote you. And he's still working with my staff today, uh, a lead on presenting our programs to the Taliban. So looking towards the future, what are you most hopeful for? Believe it or not, as messy as it is, as terrible it is, there is actually the possibility of peace in Afghanistan. What will interrupt that is uh, ISIS, Daesh, Al-Qaeda. That will interrupt. Um, There is the possibility with the way the Taliban is presenting themselves, moderating themselves, there is the possibility of Afghanistan being peaceful. And that would be extraordinary. I hope for the dialogues to be had, compromises to be made. I've never seen this before, but, you know, Qatar is, you know, said, Taliban Minister of Education, you need to come see our our Islamic education system because it's mostly women and 60% of government officials are women in Qatar, and we are a very Muslim country. So one of the things that's starting to emerge, I think maybe our saving grace, is the regional countries that are Muslim coming in and um, starting to navigate the religious beliefs. Wow. There is a lot of hope. There is. It's hard to see. There are tragic events. There is awful things happening. There's no question about it. But um, one of the things leaders do is choose what you're going to grow. Choose what you're going to focus on and grow it. And that's what I do. You know, so in every challenge, I'm always looking for the innovation, the leverage, who's doing well, who's who's going to keep going. And that's what I do. And also in terms of growing leaders. And I look forward to going back to Kabul so that I can see for myself uh, what's actually happening. And what you're not hearing is a new energy emerging. And I know it is. 
People are not just saying yes to the Taliban. People are arguing. People are navigating this differently. And that there's strength in that. And I'd like to see that amplified more. So if you were to say like a one or a few sentences that you would want people to understand who are unfamiliar with Afghanistan, what would you want people to know? The people who are currently suffering are the people. They're not the leaders of any of the countries. It's the people. And that tragedy has to be addressed beyond the political rhetoric, beyond, you know, stubborn positions on all parts. There is a way forward through dialogue. Okay, so I studied mechanical engineering in college, so excuse me for putting this in physics terms, but chaos seems to be the natural state of things. It's central to the second law of thermodynamics. That entropy, disorder, randomness, uncertainty, it increases with time. But life and really human beings are like these entropy-reducing machines. The natural state of things may be chaos, but we build communities, civilizations. We discover new technologies to improve life and medicine to heal wounds, right? This is all things that reduce entropy. I mean, life itself is a defiance of the universe's tendency towards chaos. And with this, there's a delicate tension in Afghanistan. Things could go either way and things could easily get worse. But I'm struck by Marnie's outlook, by her focus on the potential for peace. Peace is always an option, albeit a difficult one, and right now maybe an unlikely one. But peace also doesn't just randomly happen. Peace is not the natural state of the universe. Peace needs to be fought for, hard won. And it's people like Marnie who are on the front lines of the battle for peace in Afghanistan, a battle against entropy. After talking to Marnie, I think it really comes down to love and understanding. That's the key to finding peace and helping others. Not just observing from afar, from behind our screens and social media, just commenting on the situation, discussing what's to be done, but actually taking action. Marnie fell for Afghanistan by meeting the Afghan peoples, learning their culture. Ever since, trips back have felt like returning home. Meeting new people has always felt to her like reuniting with family and familiar friends. And for her entire professional life, she's never stopped working to give back to Afghanistan. That's what I call true love. And that came before meeting people, hearing their stories when this loss and tragedy strikes. She knew who was affected because she loved this country. And that intimacy with Afghan life and well-being is what spurred her to action. It's Marnie's love and empathy that keeps her spirits high and strong when everything is telling her to hang her head. So if you find yourself needing to seek confidence to keep going in the face of hardship, or if plans have been dashed and you don't know what to do next, I think we could all take a page from Marnie's book. This isn't the end for the Scouts or the Sisters for Sisters or Brothers for Brothers program. Marnie still has so much she wants to accomplish. The change in atmosphere is not permanent. With others like Marnie, Afghanistan can once again become peaceful. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Don. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from 
Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candazza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.